Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to the lock-in, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. We're locked in today with one of the most successful screenwriters in Britain. Jed Mercurio was once a hospital doctor and an RAF officer. Now he's known as the creator of the wildly successful line of duty about a team of anti-corruption officers at an unidentified police force, which I imagine to be in the Midlands. Jed, what would you I've had to have wrong with me to have been treated by you in the in your past life? Uh, I worked as um, a senior house officer in general medicine, which it sounds very broad, but actually is kind of acute medical presentations in hospitals. So that's heart attacks, uh, respiratory problems, neurological problems, uh, gastroenterological problems. And I tended to focus on the, the kind of acutely ill emergencies uh, as part of our team's work. So were you in blue scrubs crashing through curtains all the time, saving people's lives? Oh, I wish. Um, to be honest, back then it was white coats. That was back in the days in the 90s when doctors wore white coats and your pockets were filled with handbooks and tourniquets and venflons and syringes and... Uh, it was definitely a vector for uh, disease transmission because uh, these things just went from ward to ward. And we wore ties back then. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I just missed out on the, the, the more dynamic look. Did you wear a bow tie? No, bow ties were a signifier of kind of uh, oddball personalities. So um, it was very much the standard kind of Windsor knot for the, uh, the juniors. Oh, I thought bow ties just developed a fashionability among doctors because they kept the tie out of the wound. They did, but they were very much a kind of fashion choice as well. I, I think there's the, it's very easy to um, tuck a tie into your shirt. And the other thing is if you're, you're carrying out a, a proper procedure, you should 
uh, you should put your scrubs on. Everyone associates you now with line of duty, but what are you most proud of in your life? Um, that's a really difficult question, I think, to ask a writer because you kind of get very involved in a in a project you're working on, and there's a difference, of course, between how something turns out artistically and how it's received. So, I think I'm very proud of the medical dramas I did, Cardiac Arrest and Bodies, because I think they had something to say about the NHS that wasn't being said. Um, but then I would say that, you know, later on in, in Line of Duty, we've started to say things about the, the society we're in now that aren't being said by other dramas. Why did you decide to ditch medicine? I didn't, you know. What actually happened was that I, I um, was working on the second season of Cardiac Arrest and took a, a, a sabbatical of six months uh, from my senior house officer rotation to concentrate on the shoot. And then the series got recommissioned, so I extended my sabbatical. And then eventually I reached the point where I just agreed with my hospital that I would... I would notify them if I was coming back, and I've just never notified them. So you might become a doctor again? I think it's a bit unlikely now. I think, you know, during the pandemic, when there was a call-up for uh, medically trained people, I did go to the NHS England website, uh, and there was nowhere on the drop-down list uh, where it said hasn't practised for 25 years. So I, I think I'm well out of it now. But you still fly a plane, then? No, I again, I kind of, um, I, I came out of the Air Force and then I, I was briefly involved with the Army Air Corps. Um, and the last flying I did was in the Army. I actually joined the Army for, for two weeks because uh, I turned up to do the flying grading course at Middle Wallop for the Army Air Corps. And uh, the, the guys there said, oh, we've got a, a slight problem. You're a civilian and civilians can't fly military aircraft. So... Can you join the army, please? So I signed up to join the army and they promised that they'd let me out at the end of the course. So the last flying I did was, uh, and I remember it very clearly because it was during the 1994 World Cup. Go on. Oh, that was it. It was just the fact that I can, I can place it very exactly that uh, we would fly during the day and then in the officer's mess, we'd watch the World Cup games. <laughs> Now, going back to your childhood, you were the son of a coal miner. I've just written a book about coal. Very politicised industry, wasn't it? It was. And um, just to kind of fill in the details, my dad started as a coal miner. He was an immigrant from Italy, like my mum. And uh, his first job was in the mines in Lancashire. They, they settled in Nelson. Um, and he hated it. He hated being underground he always talked to me about what a tough job it was and how um he he couldn't wait to get qualifications and get out of there so he went to night school and got engineering qualifications and then uh migrated into into factory work he worked in the motor industry but he still had wounds he had um a foot injury uh, when something dropped on his foot underground uh, and he had those coal dust tattoos, the, the ones where you have a, um, a laceration and coal dust gets into it, and so it just, it just discolours the skin permanently like a tattoo. Was he a face worker? Yeah. 
did he have those buttons down his back, you know, where they stood up and they raised their back vertebrae? And they... No, he di he didn't. He he kind of um, he he just he just had those he just had those couple of injuries from from industrial accidents. He also told me a story once where he got he got something in his eye when when he was underground and he had to be taken to uh the doc to see the doctor or a medical officer and he the the medical officer examined him and gave him a note uh, and told him he had to go to the hospital and my dad looked at the note and the note talked about a foreign body in his eye and my dad whose english wasn't brilliant at that time thought that the guy was uh saying that this guy's got a foreign body because he's Italian and he became very mistrustful and didn't go to the hospital. So he basically had to wait for this foreign body to work its way out. <laughs> That's very funny. But nobody escaped from the mines without something happening to them, did they? No, that's right. And it, yeah, I mean, he wore the physical um, stigmata. I mean, minor ones. I mean, obviously, mining is an incredibly hazardous profession and the, 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 the kinds of things that can happen to you underground don't, don't bear thinking about. So he always thought he was very lucky that the, 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 the wounds he did pick up were, were to be honest, minor ones. But um, that experience stayed with him, the, the, uh, of, the, the, uh, uh, of that quite oppressive underground environment the sense of danger the sense that the, the sense that it was physically an ordeal now you've explained that you made the transition from medicine practicing medicine to writing about medicine because you thought you could communicate more about the state of the nation and the state of the nhs is that is that why it was um yeah i mean i i think i was Sorry, we're talking about writing about medicine, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that we can probably consider cardiac arrest and, and bodies as looking at different aspects. I, I think with cardiac arrest, which I wrote when I was a junior hospital doctor, it was very much about the experience of hospital life at that particular level. So in the acute medical specialties, um, at the grades of house officer, senior house officer, junior registrars, where you were working long hours with, with quite limited supervision. And to be honest, we were the backbone of the NHS back then. We did, we did most of the, the acute medical care and the consultants were absent from the hospital overnight and, and often for long periods over the weekends. And so we were the, 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 I know it sounds hard to believe, even at that age, you know, kind of in your mid-twenties, only a couple of years out of medical school, but you were kind of the senior medical person that an acutely ill patient would see until the morning or until the Monday. Uh, and it felt like that wasn't a story that was being told because the medical dramas that were on TV at that time felt like they harked back to a different age. They showed a much more anodyne picture of medical life, a much less pressurised NHS working environment. With bodies, it, it was a different agenda entirely. That was, that was much more about medical negligence and the way in which medicine as an institution sometimes enables dangerous doctors to continue practising because of 
the suppression of whistleblowers and the the closing of ranks round uh, negligent practitioners. Uh, your most recent success, of course, has been line of duty. Now, how did you get involved with the police? How did it? How did you make it seem authentic? All everybody laughs about all the acronyms, but is that how the police are? Oh yeah, I I think that all, all our medical I'm sorry, all our police advisors keep keep saying uh this is how we would say these things. That um like like any um highly specialized profession, the police have their own specific terminology and that jargon like with cardiac arrest and bodies where there was a lot of medical jargon, we have a lot of police jargon in the show and it, and it gives a very similitude of authenticity i mean obviously it's an artistic choice we we could do it differently if we wanted to but we we just feel that there are a lot of uh police dramas out there and and that the genesis of line of duty was to do something different that we wanted to do something that wasn't the drama of reassurance what in the u.s is called copaganda where you just have dedicated police officers solving crimes week in week out um we wanted to do something that showed the police as an institution the changes in policing that have come in in the 21st century where there's a target culture whether there there are institutional practices that that um suppress uh public knowledge of wrongdoing and so on so it, it just kind of felt that there was a gap in the market because as with any drama, you've got to kind of carve out your own niche. And the niche we wanted for Line of Duty was to to be something that maybe challenged some of the stereotype, stereotypes and archetypes. Did you spend much time with the police? I didn't. Um, I, I read around the subject. It's actually very hard to kind of get in with police operations in the way that uh, I could with medicine. I mean, w with medicine, it was always very easy to call up mates and you and just suddenly end up in an operating theatre. Um, I mean, obviously, I went through procedures uh, in, in case anybody wants to make a complaint about that. But the fact that I'd been a doctor was very helpful. Whereas um, with the police, there was definitely early on um, a resistance to cooperating with the series but that was something that we got over when we had medical advisors who uh, sorry i keep saying medical advisors police advisors who came forward uh one of whom was an old schoolmate who was a become a police inspector in the staffordshire constabulary and so they were incredibly helpful in terms of talking me through the the experience of um policing but what i would say is that because cardiac because cardiac arrest looked at a kind of inside world that I was part of with line of duty, the challenge was to try and get into that world of policing that is closed off, and there's just no way that an outsider would be brought into an anti corruption inquiry and 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 watch a police officer um who's accused of corruption being interviewed or being investigated it's incredibly sensitive and um what we found when we tried to do research was that the the police are very protective of uh anti-corruption operations that's probably a good thing isn't it 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because the 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 fact is that if you're dealing with corruption, then you're dealing with people who will want to do anything they can to sabotage an anti-corruption inquiry. That often the officers are connected to other officers or connected to criminals, and um, the way that that particular nexus works is that it it, it there's information leakage, so they have to be incredibly. Um, uh, protective uh, in, in the management of police information. Was it important that the thing was set outside London? Uh, I think if you set something in London, then it becomes very specifically about the Met. And while the, there are certainly some storylines that, that touch on events that do relate to the kinds of cases that the Met has been involved with over the years, we we were advised that it was it was safer to um, have an anonymous police force. Um, we wanted to shoot it the the first season in Birmingham anyway because um, um, I I went to university there. I knew the city well. I hadn't seen it on TV very recently, and I thought it would it would um, give it its own identity. Uh, but actually, at the kind of 11th hour, the BBC legal people advised us that we couldn't say it was set in Birmingham. We could film there, but we had to conceal the identity of the location in case there was a suggestion that we were we were claiming outrageously, of course, that there were corrupt officers within the West Midlands police. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The key to it, though, the reason people enjoyed it so much is because they came to it, I, I know and understand the characters. I mean, Adrian Dunbar going... For the love of God, <laughs> or Kate going mate every time she speaks to Steve. Now these are these are the, how how do do you, do you do you happen upon the actors and then give them the lines or what? 
It's an evolving process. So with with uh, Adrian Dunbar's character, Ted Hastings, the way the character was conceived was quite different from how Adrian performs. But Adrian came in for an audition and we re- just really loved what he'd done. I I'd, uh, was familiar with his work and thought he would be a great character actor for the role. And at that time in season one, it was quite a small part. So the part was rewritten to suit Adrian. And then when we were lucky enough to be recommissioned, um, the, the part grew as we established that trio of investigators at AC12. Uh, and obviously they've come back for every season since. And and with the other characters, again, it, it, it was a case of auditioning actors and finding the right chemistry. And then as, as you go forward on a returning series, you get to know the cast better. You get to know how they talk, how they how they move, how they deport themselves. And so the writing is informed by that. Who came up with a line about the wee donkey? Adrian did. So, the, so uh, we, we had that line in the, uh, in the scene and he ad-libbed the wee donkey and we all laughed and I gave him a big thumbs up and the rest is history. I really enjoyed it. Were you disappointed with how it turned out? Were you anxious once people started talking about how it was going to end? Well, I think that it's a double-edged sword. When you have that level of hype around a series, when you have a series that is breaking records for the number of people who are watching it, and the press, for whatever reason, and we could you know, possibly dig into that if you want, the press are um, writing about the show, not just at the weekends when it's airing, but all through the week, and they're following the cast around. Then... You, you create a kind of buzz around a show that's almost impossible to deliver on. But what you can do, and, and the, the fact is the show's already in the can, you know, there's nothing you can change, You're, you, you, you've made the show, is you have to just trust to what the creative ambition of the piece was. And we had a very specific arc uh, for that season, a number of character trajectories, that were kind of preordained that we we followed through and so once it goes out there you then face the 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 democratic process of how people respond to it and you don't mind that you can't mind it what what um what i mind is when people make claims about how many people share their view so if somebody watches the show and says it was crap, I hated it, you're a crap writer, I'm never watching anything you ever do again, that's fine. You know, that's the, that's the democracy of the process. And I can't argue with that and I wouldn't want to argue with that. But if someone stridently says 15 million people watched that show and 15 million people thought it was shit, then there's plenty of data that you can look at that will tell you how many people liked it and how many people hated it. And for people to stridently claim that everybody hated the show as much as they did or loved the show as much as they did is, is just factually incorrect. And there's, there's data out there, quite good, robust data, that you can present to uh, modify that argument towards something that bears some basis in objective reality. Do you mind people taking an active interest like that, speculating about how it's going to end? Who's going to turn out to be H? 
No, I think it's hugely important. It's part of the relationship we have with the audience. I think that you have to start to understand what audience expectations are when a show gets as big as Line of Duty. So you know it's going to be talked about. You know the fact that each episode is is broadcast um, a week apart, that there's there's going to be speculation in the intervening week. And so in terms of our job on the show and my job as the, the, the writer of the series, part of what I do has to have one eye on expectation. So... In terms of the arc of season six, which was going to be the revelation of who H was, I knew there were a number of of expectations going in. And I also knew that during the course of the season being broadcast, new expectations would would be developing amongst large portions of the audience so we we played with that we gave we gave some misdirections towards other characters we we gave a massive misdirection away from a character who then turned out to be the the putative h um and the whole idea was if you have a mystery then the answer to it shouldn't be obvious and if if you're being really kind of mechanistic about how you write thrillers you tend to have two things in play, jeopardy or mystery. And jeopardy, we we make the audience not know what's going to happen next and fear for the future of the characters. And that's what we do by having key characters come to harm or be killed during the, the show. And the other side of it is mystery. And it has to be a difficult mystery to solve. Otherwise, the audience can see the answer, get bored and they drift away. I don't know the answer to that, Jeremy. I, I think it's too early to say. We we all love being part of the show. Uh, we're certainly thrilled with the fact that so many people watch the show and, and would like to see more. Um, but we, we've all moved into other creative projects and, and we need a little bit of distance from the, the, the kind of madness um, and um, sort of frenzy that, that surrounds line of duty so what are you working on at present well i'm doing some things through my production company htm television we've just finished um a a three-part dramatization of stephen lawrence's family's quest for justice uh in uh the early 21st century um and that's um hopefully going to be on air later this year and we're currently shooting a series called Trigger Point starring Vicky McClure as a bomb disposal officer alongside Adrian Lester and that should be on air sometime next year. Do you, How do you work? Do you work in the mornings, afternoons or what? It varies uh, Jeremy. I, I, I don't have a set routine. Um, I, I try not to feel that I need to complete a certain amount of work over the course of a day. Uh, just because my day is, is filled with with uh, the, the exigencies of production, I might need to be on set, I might need to be in the, the cutting room, I might need to be um, reviewing casting auditions. There are all kinds of things that are, are kind of on, on my slate to do. So the writing has to fit around those. 
And then when we're doing something like Line of Duty or when we were doing Bodyguard where I'm writing all the scripts, then I need to I need to be around. I need to actually be uh, in with the production and having meetings with all the, the, the key kind of editorial team and the heads of department. And I'm probably working away. I'm 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 either working in an office or I'm I'm in a hotel or a flat or occasionally I'm I'm even writing on the set. Find a, a quiet a quiet part of AC twelve and set up my laptop. Can you tell me when you think of something else you want to do with your life? You look, you look at the lives you've had. You got another one in mind? No, um, I'm I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. I feel very fortunate and privileged to to be in this position as as a TV writer where I'm so involved in the production of my shows. When I, when I started out, uh, right at the beginning, I I was kind of marginalised from the process, as a lot of writers are. They cast people who um, I, I wasn't involved in in the the discussion of and. Um, sometimes scenes were changed without any reference to what my view was. Um, and while I was very pleased with the way Cardiac Arrest turned out, that there were times when I thought it would have been helpful if I'd been more involved. And so as my career progressed, I got more opportunities to get involved. And, and now I'm in this situation where I'm I'm one of those so-called showrunners and I and I'm a true showrunner. I'm not a just a lead writer who takes an executive producer credit and has no involvement in the the big decisions. I'm I'm very involved in the big decisions and I'm talking with the the broadcasters and the production companies and I'm on the set and I'm and I'm part of that process and I just love doing that and I feel very fortunate and privileged to have that opportunity. You think you're lucky? Yeah, I, I am. Because if you look back at how kind of marginal an event it was that I got involved in TV, I mean, I was working as a doctor. I I got no experience or training in, in the uh, creative arts. That I didn't study those things at school. I didn't really have the opportunity to study those things. And then um, I responded to an advert in the British Medical Journal to be an advisor on a show and then ended up being involved as a writer. I mean, that was an extraordinarily fortunate pathway to where I am now. Are you one of those people who worries that you've been so lucky it can't last? No, I don't. I don't think like that. I think uh, introspection is not something that I particularly participate in. Um, I, I kind of focus on the outside world. I, I kind of look at it as um, um, like playing a sport. Um, when the ball comes at me, I just hit it hard into the corners. What does success feel like, Jed? You first. What does success feel like, Jeremy? I wish I knew. You do know you've been a very successful broadcaster for a long time. I was successful for a long time. Um, I think it feels that you're walking on water. I always, unlike you, I always think that you're gonna, it's, it's all going to come apart this time, mate. You're going to get it wrong. I don't... Okay, I, I don't think that way. But then I think I can understand that there are... That, that yours is a is is more of a high wire act because you're actually on TV. You're you're in you're on live TV a lot of the time and you know for a large part of your career you were dealing with 
uh, high-ranking politicians who who are looking to to um to kind of win an encounter or discredit your line of inquiry whereas my relationship with the outside world is less adversarial so i i kind of um i i kind of think i'm i'm as long as i keep doing the right things i'll be okay it's like i'm thinking as long as i you know, as long as I, I get my club all the way through the ball or get my racket all the way through the ball, then that's all I can do. Um, and just, you know, just just focus on doing the job well. You know, a, th- a thing that I learned when I was um, flying was, was um, a, a, a very great um, piece of advice was takeoffs are optional, landings are mandatory. And um, I, I think that's a pretty good way of thinking about things. You know, it's it's um, because I have to think a lot about whether I'm going to write a particular project that, you know, there comes a point where if I have misgivings, I can stop and pull out uh, and not see it through. Whereas earlier in my career, that there were a couple of things where definitely I had those misgivings, but I wasn't in the position to to be able to pull out. I didn't have that power then. Um, whereas now I'm very fortunate that if, if I say this isn't going right, we need to rethink, then people will listen to me. Do you believe in the police? Yeah, I, I think fundamentally the vast majority of police officers have joined the police for the right reasons. They believe in justice. They believe in protecting the public. And they go about the job to the best of their ability. Policing as an institution is a different thing. I, I think that at the highest levels of the police, you are, dele- you are dealing with political animals who have political considerations. And part of their political, part of their political considerations is, is this... Is, is, the truth going to look worse than a lie? Is a cover-up going to be the the best solution to this problem? And that is obviously very different from the day-to-day experience of police officers. It's very noticeable that the least attractive figures in your piece are senior officers. Yeah, and, and I think if you look at some of the... Um, the examples that exist in the real world of police corruption. What you will see is that, yes, there are occasions where officers at ground level make mistakes and occasionally do things that that are um, extreme examples of wrongdoing. But there are also many occasions when it's an institutional failure and what you get then are the very senior people attempting to cover their backs and to um, to create messaging which uh, diverts the blame either towards the victim or towards um, other forces as as a way of exonerating themselves. And that's fundamentally because they are incapable of owning up to wrongdoing. They're possibly incapable of recognising wrongdoing in others, even though many of the statements they make claim very different. 
Jim Mercurio, thank you very much indeed. Ah, uh, thanks, Jeremy. That was great. I really enjoyed it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 